And now a reading from the Common English Bible, beginning the sixth chapter of John, verse 51, down through verse 58. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews debated among themselves, asking, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the human one and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. As the living God sent me, and I live because of God, so whoever eats me lives because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It isn't like the bread your ancestors ate, and then they died. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for this challenging passage of Scripture. Some language and some metaphors simply create more of a mess than they ever clean up when it comes to translating and understanding the meaning of such scriptures as the one we just read. Eating and drinking the flesh and blood of Jesus is, for me, one of those less than desirable things to think about. Simply reading this passage out loud even makes me a bit squeamish because it just doesn't translate well into modern thought at first hearing. But not addressing it, skipping on by this scripture, just letting it slide right past when passages like this are difficult would allow those who interpret it literally and arguably even harmfully to own it and to rob it of the possible meanings that could be useful for modern people. And I simply can't let them own this one. So here goes. Are you listening? The author of John's Gospel is not talking literally about eating and drinking Jesus' flesh as much as we would like to believe this was the institution of communion. I don't believe this is it at all. Most would freely admit that this would be an outright cultic activity if some people were really eating and drinking anybody, right? And just as eating and drinking, however, are necessary for survival for those who follow Jesus, it's necessary to live life fully and abundantly as God intends. The author is trying to say that. It just falls so clumsily across the 2,000 years gap in the telling of this metaphor and the hearing of this metaphor that we lose something in the translation of this Koine Greek into English and the understandings and the different meanings that get inflected with these kinds of languages. Think of it as a more natural process. Let's get to the spirit of what's being said. I think of it as a natural process, kind of like breathing. For me, that's more helpful. Eating and drinking is something you do to sustain your body. You can't go very long. I really can't go very long without doing a little of both or a lot in some cases. But breathing seems to be a better fit. If we think about breathing, being important to sustaining us, that's the parallel the author's trying to make, following in this weird, unique way of Jesus should be as much of a part for Jesus' followers as breathing, or as eating, 
or as drinking. Then we don't have to wade through all of the cannibalistic overtones of eating and drinking Jesus. So our view of the challenging language that we find this text is not so unlike the challenges that we actually face when trying to interpret so many things in our lives today. For example, so much of life is defined by habits and customs and traditions and restrictions. We're experiencing firsthand the challenging space humanity often finds itself in with the whole COVID global pandemic. Should vaccines be required in order to participate in public life? If so, to what extent? If so, who monitors it? And what role shall our government play in banning or allowing mask mandates or proof of vaccinations? We hear personal responsibility championed at the state level. But what happens when individuals are anything but personally responsible? Beyond just in times of a public health crisis like we find ourselves in, society often poses regulations during more, quote, normal times, whatever that will look like, right, going forward. We've imposed things like to guard the innocent, to defend against the reckless, and to promote what we call the common good environmental safety, consumer product safety, and traffic safety are all watchwords for the promise of an ongoing, ever-evolving conversation, a conversation about the need for private and commercial interests to operate within certain limits, limits that will afford reasonable protection for individuals and families and communities against such possible dangers. Such limitations or restrictions, therefore, are not bad in and of themselves because we need to know, don't we, that material goods have been properly tested and approved before they're just unleashed on the general public. We need to know that corporations are not able to take unfair advantages in their competitive struggle for market shares and for more sales and more revenue. We must have guidelines, we must have standards, we must have policies that promote safety, stability, and predictability within our world, or we end up with absolute chaos. Hey, we're starting to know something about that, aren't we? But what happens when we are confronted with an invitation to enter this same old world with new eyes? or with a new way of being, a new way of living, a new way of operating within this old, crusty system. A world, instead of defined by some of these things that we've talked about, by the mystery and promise of such things as grace and truth and justice. What became of the old regulations when Jesus came to his own people, and his own people outright rejected him. This is the nature of the conversation recorded in the gospel according to John, a conversation in response to Jesus, whose teachings were striving to raise up a new way of living in an old, dying system. A new way of living in a world so tired, so set in its ways, that it threatened the status quo to the extent that he was executed by the state. Chapter by chapter, 
John's gospel challenges habits and customs and traditions and restrictions by articulating this vision that Jesus had for a new way of living within the old systems. Is there anything, I began to wonder as I prepared, is there anything important left for us to learn today about this way of living in the tired old world of which we're all a part? He told teachers of the old ways that unless they were born again, they wouldn't be able to see this new world he was proclaiming. But then about 150 to 200 years ago, along came evangelical Christianity, and they hijacked this metaphor, born again, to make it out to mean something entirely different from what I believe Jesus meant when he talked about being born again. Now we equate being a born-again Christian as praying a sinner's prayer for the sake of a heaven later. You know, believing the right stuff to get some stuff later. That's kind of what we've been trained by our evangelical cousins in the faith to believe Jesus must have meant. But, but what if there's still something there, this whole concept of being born again, of seeing the world anew, to put it that way, in language that we might more easily accept? What if there's something left there that they missed when they hijacked that term and they left it behind that could still be life-giving for us today? What if we could experience something fresh? What if there really is some way to experience healing, wholeness, and justice in tangible ways, not from fevers of the body and that kind of sickness, that kind of healing, but from fever-stricken hatred and bitterness and injustices that we hold a little too close to our hearts for others, well, who ruin this world for the rest of us. I'll just leave it at that. As this gospel conversation continues, what if something could happen in the hearts of those who begin to question the limitations of conventional thinking of our own day and age? You know, of the old world, us and them binary means of thinking. We may not use this language, but we have been trained to hate our cultural enemies to the point where we no longer see many of them as human beings. We have been conditioned to jump from one cultural outrage to the next. I'm guilty. I do it. But where is this getting us? We have to ask ourselves, even if our inclinations are correct, and those people, whoever those people happen to be on which side of the conversation, if those people really are evil, what if they're not just dumb? What if they really are evil? <laughs> I think about these things, do you? What is our anger in situations like that? What is our anger leading us to become? Is our anger, is our bitterness healing anyone? Is it fixing the mess as fast as those people make it? Can we even help how we feel, I wonder, in times of complete honesty, let alone change any of this mess if we tried? Perhaps we can allow the metaphor of hunger and thirst to represent the growing capacity within people of old world thinking and old world living to respond to the message of Jesus that he was trying to bring to the world, uh, as the Apostle Paul called it, a more excellent way the kingdom of God. Surely, friends, surely we hunger for something new, something better. When we share in the grief and the anger of the family of a person like George Floyd, 
who was killed in the street by Officer Derek Chauvin, kneeling on his neck for over eight minutes. Surely we want a better world than that, don't we? Or how about the families and loved ones of all the other black folks whose killers were never brought to trial, who walk free? Surely we want something better than that, don't we? Sure, we hunger and thirst for something better than inhumane ways our neighbors and friends who are born on the south side of the border are treated, knowing that the United States could very well solve many of the problems that drive our friends from south of the border to come looking for a better place to live. We want something better than that, leaving people homeless and then calling them aliens for something that our country has very much had a part in participating in the violence and chaos that drove them from their countries. When they arrive at our borders, they do so separate from their families, and then we deny them a legal pathway to citizenship and leave it up in the air. Surely we're hungering and thirsting for something more satisfying than the bitter cup of misery and neglect that so many children who live in poverty, in every corner of this world, endure every day when they can't even find a cup of water, let alone a meal. Surely we want something better than that, don't we? Surely we have a certain kind of hunger and thirst that drives us to seek an end to the violence that is driven by things like religious intolerance and ethnic hatred that fuel the fires of terrorism and racism holding nations and neighborhoods hostage to the warfare of hostilities that seem to never end. We are hungry indeed for peace and thirsty, for reconciliation in this old and crusty and troubled and broken world. We long for a way to overcome the social chasms of race and class and gender and sexual identity. We pray for the day when the burden of mistrust is lifted from the backs of those of us who are different. Yes, we are hungry and we are thirsty for a new way of living in this old, crusty world, a way where we celebrate the gifts of truth and peace and one that might even be harder to come by, grace. The kinds of gifts where we look one another in the eye and we recognize the kinship of siblings and sisters and brothers who, though they may be different from us, are nonetheless children of God. The promise of this new world is set forth in the strongest possible terms and that shocking language we read earlier, but so often try to make about something it was never intended to address. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. Not like your ancestors ate and still they died, because whoever eats this bread will live forever. Don't get lost in the metaphors and believing someone else's interpretation of this, that you, you don't have to inherit it. We're smarter than that. We can look at the context and understand what Jesus was really saying. These words of Jesus, as recorded by the author of John's Gospel, are not a series of sermons. They're not a series of speeches. They're not even the institution of a sacrament. They're not high-sounding platitudes or the work of spin doctors or publicists trying to promote some candidate. They're not a resume of someone's wishful thinking, a compendium of dreams, visions, and ideals disconnected from will 
from the will and the power to actually achieve them. No, these words of Jesus are an invitation. You want to know what the invitation is? Come and see. That's the invitation. Come and see. A new way, a better way, a higher way, a more excellent way, a more just way, a more loving way, a more peace-filled way, not the kind of peace that comes through the absence of tension, but the kind of peace that comes through the presence of justice. They become more explicit as they bid the hungry and the thirsty to experience a taste of grace amidst this messy world. A world willing to let go of the stranglehold we reserve for those with whom we vehemently disagree. A world in which people with whom we disagree can be our ideological opponents without becoming our mortal enemy. It's tough. I'm preaching to myself. A world Jesus was inviting us to experience where we hold firm to our convictions without holding firm to the jugular of those with whom we disagree. It's tough. We don't always have the eyes to see it. But I think what the author of John's Gospel was trying to get across is that we already live in a world where these things are possible. They're here. They're within reach. No one is forcing us to be so tense. No one is forcing us to be so uptight. No one is forcing us to be so angry. No one is forcing us to be so at odds. We make these choices. Maintaining a healthy outlook on life must be continually nourished with a sense of grace and responsibility, not just responsibility, because we all fail at our responsibilities. And we, when we do, we all stand in need of grace, not getting what we deserve, in case you're still wondering what that looks like. I'm not suggesting we let calloused hate crimes or injustices go unchallenged or that we allow chaos to rule the day. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind either. But I am suggesting that we should openly find something worth celebrating along the way. There must be some sense of freedom that we find and which causes us to rejoice, if nothing else, in our shared humanity, even if it's just in this small community. I'm not suggesting that we all ignore pain and suffering around us as we encounter it. I'm not suggesting that life cannot be frustrating and exhausting and that sometimes we don't just need to cuss and vent. What I am suggesting is that we find some safe company at some level along our journey in life to celebrate what is right with the world, even if it's only our tiny corner to celebrate the gifts of grace and truth wherever we find them and to acknowledge not only what is wrong with the world, but what is right with the world. And the truth is, we have great work to accomplish as we walk the streets of this tired, old, crusty world because we're looking for something better while we're working to make it so. May we be the ones to normalize compassion what if we are the ones who've been called to break the toxic patterns of 
action and reaction, hatred and rage, by showing a more excellent way, one that pursues justice wholeheartedly, but with an open hand. And like Jesus, we are not just called to give speeches or sermons, but to do the work of bringing freedoms to the captives, of working to create medical systems and other means where sight is literally given to the blind and where life is given to the dying. What if this way of living is to be as normal as eating food and drinking water for us? That, my friends, is what the author was getting at. You know, I've been thinking long and hard about taste buds because I tried my best for a solid month to eat what they call the ketogenic diet. Anybody ever suffered through it? I'm sorry, sorry, tried that? It always felt like we were looking for the next pile of oil or fat to drink or eat. Uh, it wasn't for us, that's okay. But what I learned through the process is that my taste buds can actually be conditioned. And so I thought about that. If you have ever doubted that your taste buds on your tongue or wherever they are, we got scientists around here who could tell us exactly where they are. If you've ever doubted that you can be conditioned for your taste buds, I challenge you to go on a fast food diet, three meals a day, including any snacks until we meet again next Sunday. Come back and you can decide whether it's a joy or a concern and report it at the appropriate time during the church service. But my guess is if you only ate from fast food chains, three meals a day plus any and every snack that you had, anything you put in your body came from a fast food drive-through or you didn't eat it or drink it. You would have to be extremely selective not to become bloated or gain weight or less healthy than you were before. Now, in the same way, most of us eat the same variety of junk food on a daily basis, but I'm not talking about the food we put in our mouths. I'm talking about the food we put in our minds, in our hearts, in our attitudes. We're conditioned. We're part of this culture. And yet, while we're in it, we're called to do something for it, to serve it, to improve it, to shape it, to help transform it. And so we put junk food in our minds and in other places, and so we begin to kind of interact with our neighbors and in this world in unhealthy ways ourselves sometimes. We're almost overfed information on one hand and yet undernourished on the other because we eat the wrong stuff. So my hope is that this message today will serve as a call for us to seek nourishment in forms that actually feed us and actually strengthen us for the work to which we've been called let our faith be seen and felt as we participate in the work, the literal work of setting others free, while holding on to the humanity of every single other. May we find wisdom and compassion within us so that we can hold on to the deep need for justice in one hand and to the delicious taste of grace with the other for those who need it. Sometimes we're the ones who need it. And once we have found this tricky balance ourselves, may we be quick to share it with the world. And may this weird, different way of living become as normal as eating and drinking for all of us and for the whole world. Amen.